Are you looking for a word from God today? If so, First Baptist Dallas is glad to present this dynamic message by Dr. Robert Jeffress. Dr. Jeffress is a premier Bible teacher, pastor, and author whose practical applications of God's truth help guide and encourage those who seek to know and follow the Lord Jesus. I know you'll be blessed. And now, the message by Dr. Robert Jeffress. Although his name was Victor, he felt like a loser for the first part of his life. You can understand why. When he was 16, he was doing so poorly in high school that his high school guidance counselor actually suggested he drop out of school and take a job. Can you imagine? He followed that advice. By the time he was 32, he had been fired from 76 different jobs. But his application for his 77th job changed his life forever. As part of the application process, he was required to take an IQ test, intelligence quotient test. And if you know anything about that test, you know a score of 116 is average. 130 is certainly above average. 132 is genius level and actually admits you into the Mensa group for highly intelligent human beings. Victor scored 161. Although he had been thought to be a dunce, the fact is he was a genius. Victor Serenkos went on to become known for his innovations in laser technology, and eventually he became the president of the Mensa organization. Now, obviously, it wasn't the test itself that changed Victor Serenko. That test simply revealed what was already true about him and encouraged him to act accordingly. You know, the same thing is true for us as Christians. Most Christians don't realize the incredible power they already have. And in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is going to encourage us to be aware of not a power we still need, but a power we already have as believers in Jesus Christ and to act accordingly. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 1 as we look at how to experience a power surge. Now, because of the holidays and our end time series, it's been a while since we've been in the book of Ephesians. So let me remind you of where we are in chapter 1. If I were going to summarize the first 14 verses of Ephesians 1, I would do so with these three words. You are special. You are special. God has set his sights and affection upon you for no other reason than his love for you. In Ephesians 1, 3, Paul talks about all of the blessings that God has given us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose in us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. Paul details in these verses seven specific blessings that God has given to us that come from the Godhead the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I'd summarize it this way. God has selected us. God the Father has selected us. God the Son has saved us. 
and God the Holy Spirit has secured us. That's why we are blessed by God. And when Paul thinks about this as he's writing this letter, he stops when we get to verse 15 and just offers this word of praise to God for his undeserved blessing and then this prayer for every Christian. He says in verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be literally flooded with light so that you will know what is the hope of God's calling, what are the riches of his glory of the inheritance in the saints. He said, I'm praying three things for you, Ephesian Christians. I'm praying that you would come to understand that God has called you. Not only that, he's enriched you. That is, he's given you a spiritual inheritance reserved in heaven that will never fade away. But not only has God called you and enriched you, thirdly, he has empowered you. And that's where we come today in verse 19. First of all, Paul talks about the existence of God's power. Look at verse 19. And I pray that you might know what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. You know that word surpassing, circle it, is the Greek word uperbalo, the prefix uper. We get our word hyper from it. It means overactive, kinetic, He said, that's what God's power is. It is surpassing. He said, I pray that you might know the surpassing greatness. The Greek word there is megathes. We get mega from it, megathos. The greatness of his power, that's the word dunamis. We get our word dynamite from toward us who believes. These are in accordance with the working. There's another word for power, the energia we get the word power from it, or energy, the energeia, the working of the strength, kratos. It refers to a strength that is made manifest that everybody can see. The strength of his might, the Greek word iskus, a word that refers to uh, that which uh, is given from one person to another. Why all of these words for power? Somebody summarized it this way. If Paul were speaking to us, Today, he might say, I pray that you might know the hyperactivity and the measurelessness of God's dynamic power given to us who believe in accordance with the operative energy of the manifested strength of his endowing might. That is a mouthful. Why does he list these six or so adjectives to describe power? What Paul is saying is, I pray that you might know what real power is already yours and that you might act accordingly. Don't act like a spiritual dunce. Be a spiritual genius and realize what God has already given you. Too many Christians live like the woman Max Licato describes who lived at the turn of the century on a seashore in Ireland. She was very frugal but very wealthy. Funny how those two things go hand in hand sometimes. And when electricity became available in her city, in her little town, uh, the residents were amazed that she was the first person to sign up, but she did. She wanted electricity in her home. A couple of weeks later, the meter reader stopped by to see how much she owed for her use of electricity. And as he looked at the meter, he was amazed it had barely moved. And he said to you, aren't you using the electricity? Oh, yes, she said. I use it every night when the sun goes down. I use it just long enough to light my candles. As Max says, many Christians are just like that. 
Our souls are saved, but our hearts are unchanged. We are connected, but not altered. Trusting Christ for salvation, but resisting transformation. We occasionally flip the switch, but most of the time, we settle for shadows. We settle for the shadow of despair over our present situation. We live in the shadow of fear about the future. We live in the shadow of defeat in the face of temptation. We don't realize what hyperkinetics or passing power is already available to us through God. The existence of God's power, it's really there. Well, Paul, what do you mean, God's power? Can you give us some examples of that power that is available to us right now? Sure, Paul says. Let me give you three examples. Look at verses 20 to 22, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things in subjection under Christ's feet and gave Christ as head over all things to the church. There are three specific illustrations of God's supernatural power. First of all, you see it in the resurrection from the dead. Paul writes, when he raised Christ from the dead, Pastor Kent Hughes has said, if the cross is the highest display of God's love, then the empty tomb is the highest display of God's power. You know, the fact is, we don't realize that. We've been hearing the story of the resurrection for so long, we've grown a little bit numb to it. So let's go back and revisit what really happened on that Easter Sunday morning. Remember what it was like Friday afternoon, Good Friday? By 3 p.m., Christ had died, and his disciples had taken his limp and lifeless body off the cross and they had taken it to a tomb, and they started the preparation of his body to wrap it in spices so that it would not prematurely decay. But they couldn't finish the process. They ran out of time because the Sabbath had come. And so on that Easter Sunday morning, the women returned to the tomb to finish that process. And when they got there, they were amazed to see that giant stone rolled away and the angel sitting on top of the stone saying, he is not here. He is risen from the dead, just as he said. Come see the place where he was lying. Again, we hear that so many things, we think that's a nice story. But think of the incredible power that was on display. The power of God came like a meteor crashing to earth, crashing against that tomb and moving the mighty stone away. And that that resurrection power rearranged the molecules into Jesus' body and transformed him into a living, walking, breathing, speaking human being. That is beyond comprehension. If I could illustrate it for you this way, just think of it in these terms. How many of you have lost somebody close to you through death? A great friend, perhaps a parent, a mate, or even a child. How many of you can identify with having lost somebody you truly cared about? Just imagine going to that person's grave or standing over their ashes if they were cremated. Just imagine standing there and sobbing uncontrollably over your loss. 
It doesn't matter how many tears you shed. Those tears are not going to bring that loved one back to life again. It doesn't matter how loudly you say, come forth from the dead, come forth from the dead. Absolutely nothing is going to happen. But on that Easter Sunday morning, God's power reached down and rearranged the molecules in Jesus' lifeless body and turned him into that breathing, living, talking, teaching Son of God. That is a miracle. And the Bible says the power that was available to do that, that same power is available to you. For what purpose? What is the purpose of the resurrection power? Well, certainly it guarantees that one day we will escape death as well. As in Adam all die, Paul said, so in Christ all shall be made alive. When you're dead, you're not really dead. You're just at a different location. And God is going to bring your body alive again one day, and he's going to change it in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. There is a great resurrection coming. You know, the resurrection of Jesus was not just a one-off event. It was the beginning of a series of resurrections. The Bible said in Colossians 1.15, Prototicus, Jesus Christ is the Prototicus of all creation. He is the prototype. He's just the first of many who will be raised in the same way he was. There is a future application. We're going to experience that resurrection power one day. But there is an application for us right now. The same power is available to live this life with. What do I mean? Turn over for just a moment to Romans chapter 6. Hold your place here and turn over to Romans chapter 6. Romans 4 and 5, Paul has been talking about God's grace to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. And Paul talks about the marvelous truth about God's grace. It doesn't matter how much you sin, God's grace is greater than your sin. You can't out the grace of God. It doesn't matter what you've done, God is willing to forgive you. Of course, somebody might say, well, if that's true, then why not go on sinning as much as I want to? Answer, because when you're saved, your want to's change. And that's what Paul says beginning in chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Paul said, where sin abounds, grace abounds. Well, if we wanted God to be shown to be more merciful, let's sin more. Should we continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be, he says in verse 2. That's the strongest denunciation in the Greek language. May it never be, for how shall we who have died to sin still live in it? The cemetery is not for people who are alive, but for people who are dead. Can you imagine God raising Jesus' body? raising him from the dead, and Jesus saying to God the Father, you know, I appreciate what you did for me, but I think I'm going to stay in this damp and stinky tomb a little longer. I mean, such a thing is unimaginable. The living have no place among the dead. It's the same way spiritually. Why would we who have been made victorious over sin still live in it? Or do you not know, verse 3, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Now, when we think of baptism, we think of water baptism, and that's very important. But what he's talking about here 
is the reality that bad water baptism portrays. It what happens to us spiritually when we are born again. That pool up there represents the watery grave. And you saw Ben a few moments ago baptized two individuals and they were placed down into the water and brought back up out of the water. That water represents a grave. It represents our existence before we become a Christian. We die to ourselves. We die to our old way of living, and we are raised to a new way of life. By the way, this won't cost you anything extra, but that's why baptism is not for babies. There's not one instance in the Bible of a baby being baptized. The pattern is always you believe first, whether it's as a little child we saw this morning or a senior adult. We believe first, and then we're baptized. And if you just got sprinkled as a baby, you didn't get baptized, you got wet. You didn't get baptized. First of all, you didn't know what you were doing. And secondly, it was by sprinkling. The word baptized means immersion. And the reason for that is the picture you're portraying. Jesus went down into the water, the Bible says, and came up out of the water. The Ethiopian eunuch went down into the water and came up out of the water. When you are baptized, you're saying, I have died to my old way of living, and I am a new person in Christ. Romans 6, 11, even so then, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Once you are saved and have the power of the Holy Spirit, listen to this, sin has no more control of your life than you choose to allow it to have. You are no longer obligated to sin. You've got spiritual power over sin. John Stott, the late theologian, said it this way, Every Christian's biography is written in two volumes. Volume one is the story of my old nature, my old self, before my conversion. Volume two is the story of my new self, my new nature that I received when I was saved. Volume one of my biography ended with the crucifixion of my old nature. I was a sinner. I deserved to die, and in a sense, I did die in Christ. I received my deserved punishment by being joined together with Jesus who suffered the wrath of God. Volume two of my biography opens with my resurrection. My old life is finished. My new life has begun. Amen. That's what Paul is saying to us. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to us right now to give us victory over sin. One example of God's supernatural hyperkinetic power is Christ's resurrection from the dead. A second example, Paul says, is Christ's ascension into heaven. Look at verse 20 again. He raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. This is a reference to the ascension of Jesus. You know, we give so much attention to the resurrection, sometimes we glide over the ascension. Maybe we think God was exhausted after the resurrection. He didn't have any more power. No, he had a tremendous amount of power. I want you to think about the power that was involved in the ascension of Christ. You remember the setting? Jesus got his brand new body, one like we're going to have one day after his resurrection. He spent 40 days teaching and fellowshipping with his disciples, but then came time for his departure. 
And he and his disciples gathered on the Mount of Olives. And after some final marching orders, what happened to Jesus? The disciples watched as he was lifted up into heaven. And they were gazing at the sky. They couldn't believe what they were seeing. And remember the angel said, why are you gazing, gawking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you will return in the same way. I want you just to think of the power that was involved in raising Christ into the air and into the heavenlies. I've become a little bit familiar with the Marvel superheroes because of my grandchildren. And uh, one they like especially is called Iron Man. Have you seen Iron Man? He flies around. He has this supernatural, uh, highly developed uh, uh, suit that allows him to go anywhere. But as I looked at what he was wearing, it was really, to me, just a souped-up version of the jetpack. Remember jetpacks back in the 60s and 70s? James Bond had a jetpack, I remember. And he lifted up off the ground, flew around a little bit, but it gave out after about 20 or 30 seconds. Jetpacks were very limited. Think about Jesus. He had more than a jetpack. He had more than an Iron Man costume. He had the power of God that lifted him up, not just to take a quick tour of Jerusalem, but to lift him up into heaven itself. That is supernatural power, the same kind of power that you and I have. And what did he do with Christ? He seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. The right seat, the seat at the right of a monarch was the power seat. Whoever sat in that right-hand seat had all the power the king was had. In fact, he was thought to be equal to the king. That was Jesus Christ. He ascended into heaven. The third example of his resurrection power and the power that's available to us is seen in his rule over all things. He seated him at the right hand of God. Look at this, verse 21. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but also in the age to come. And Jesus put all things in subjection under his feet. All things, the Bible said, were created by Christ and for Christ. Hebrews 1 says he upholds every part of this universe by the power of his word. Abraham Cooper, the Dutch theologian, says there is not one square inch of this universe over which Jesus Christ does not cry out, mine, this belongs to me. This entire world, this entire universe and everything in it belongs to Christ. He rules over everything, and by the way, he rules over everyone in this universe. Joe Biden, Donald Trump, Vladimir Putin, every king and queen and ruler, every luminary of Hollywood, every titan of business, everyone exist under the reign of Jesus Christ. You say, well, not everybody is obeying his reign and subjecting themselves to his reign. That's true, but one day they will. One day they will. I had a vivid display of that that is burned into my memory forever. I will never forget six years ago attending the funeral service of Billy Graham and at that service were different leaders of all kinds there. 
I happened to be seated behind the President of the United States. And at a point in the service, every one of us stood together and we sang that song, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name. Let angels prostrate fall, bring forth the royal diadem, and crown him Lord of all. Ladies and gentlemen, it doesn't matter who you are. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. That's the power of Jesus Christ as seen in his rule over all things. Don't forget Paul's thesis here, that same power that raised Christ from the dead, that has lifted him into heaven, that gives him authority over the universe, that same power is available to you and me. Well, how do we activate that power? Let me give you three closing principles and truths to help you act in a way that is according to the power that you have. First of all, the power, pardon me, the source of God's power is Christ. The source of God's power is Christ. Look at this in verse 22. And God gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Circle that word church because it's the first time this word is used in the book of Ephesians. But Paul's going to talk about the church often. That Greek word church here is ekklesia. It means the called out ones. When the Bible refers to the church, always it refers to individuals, baptized believers, members of the church. Never does the word church refer to a building. Did you know for the first 300 years of the history of Christianity, there were no buildings? That's why the word never refers to buildings. There were no buildings. Uh, buildings are fine. They're great. They're a help to us in doing the Great Commission. But that's not what the church is. The church is not bricks and stones. It is lives. In fact, it's interesting. The word for church, kyriakos, that was used in the time of Constantine, the Roman emperor, and ever since that time, Kyriakos refers to buildings. But Paul refers to people. He said, you are the church. You are the church. In 1 Corinthians 12 and so many other passages, the church is referred to as the body of Christ. You see, Jesus, the head of the church, is in heaven. Unbelievers can't see Jesus right now, but they see his body on earth you and me acting on his behalf. And what the world thinks of the church largely determines what they think of Jesus Christ. We are the body of Christ. But for a body to have any life, guess what? It has to be connected to the head. A body that is severed from the head has no power whatsoever. If we want God's power, we have to be connected to God's Son. And that's why becoming a Christian is so important. Becoming a Christian does not only result in your pardon from sin, it results in your power over sin. There is a power, the power of the Holy Spirit who infuses your life when you trust in Christ as your Savior. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, for with one spirit, we were all baptized, joined together in one body. Never forget that the source of God's power is Jesus Christ. Secondly, second principle, the channel of God's power is prayer. Do you remember in our 
study of the Holy Spirit, I want more. I liken the Holy Spirit to an electric generator at the base of a hydroelectric dam. Now, don't send me any emails. I know the Holy Spirit is a person, not an it. We refer to him as he, not it. He is the third person of the Godhead. But his activity can be compared to a generator at the base of a hydroelectric dam. What is it that makes those turbines begin to turn and generate electricity? It's that water that cascades over the dam. Many times it flows through four, six, or eight different conduits. But as it hits those turbines, the turbines begin to turn and the power is generated. And I said there are four channels that activate the power of God's Holy Spirit in our life. Reading God's Word, that activates God's power in our life. Obeying God's commands, that activates God's power in our life. Being connected to a body of believers, that connection with other Christians activates the Holy Spirit's power in our life. But there's a fourth conduit, and that is prayer. I think it's perhaps one of the most powerful of the different channels through which God's power flows into our, our life. And the reason I say that is because when we pray, we're acknowledging our lack of power on our own. When we pray to God, we're saying, God, I can't do this. I need your power. And God delights in showing himself strong when we're weakest. That's how his power is made manifest. I've had that illustrated so many times as a pastor. I can't tell you the number of times I've walked into this pulpit on Sunday morning tired because of a sleepless night or distracted by some pressing concern or feeling unprepared even though I studied all week. I still didn't feel like I had a firm grasp on what the passage was really saying. I've come into this pulpit, and I've prayed silently, God, you've got to help me. I can't do it this morning. I can't do it. You didn't know it, but that's how I felt, and that's what I was praying. And yet, almost every time that happens, people will come up to me and say, there was something different about your message today. Or your message spoke to me like, none other has before. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9 says, God's strength is perfected in our weakness, for when we are weak, God is made strong. A.C. Dixon wrote, when we rely upon organization, we get what organization can do. When we rely upon education, we get what education can do. When we rely upon our eloquence, we get what eloquence can do. But when we rely on the Holy Spirit, we get what God can do. That's why I say the channel of God's power is prayer. And thirdly, the evidence of God's power is change, change in our lives. Never forget the purpose in activating God's power is not to change God. It's not to change our circumstances. It's not to change even other people. The reason we pray is to change ourselves. And the evidence that God's power is in us is some very tangible, what the Bible refers to as spiritual fruit. 
Here's the evidence of God working in your life. Paul says in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, but the fruit, the evidence of God's Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. The evidence of God's power is a changed life. There's an old fable, a Native American fable, about a young brave who came upon a nest of eagle eggs. And as a joke, he took one of the eagle eggs and placed it in the nest of prairie chickens. They all began to hatch together, and the young eagle thought it was a prairie chicken and acted like a prairie chicken. It scratched in the dirt for worms and seeds. It clucked and cackled and never flew more than two feet off the ground. One day, while they were out scratching in the dirt, they noticed a shadow looming over them, and they looked up, and they saw a giant bird in the sky. And the little eagles asked his prairie chicken brothers, what in the world is that? They said, oh, that is a golden eagle, the king of the sky. Nobody like him, but that shouldn't concern you. You'll never be like that eagle. And so as the fable goes, that young eagle died as he lived, scratching in the dirt, never rising above the existence of a prairie chicken. How many Christians do you know who are just like that? They scratch around in the dirt of immorality or unrealized dreams. They scratch around in a mediocre relationship with God, never realizing who they really are in Christ and what Christ has given to them. Paul is saying, my prayer for you is that your heart will be flooded with light so that you may come to understand the surpassing greatness of God's power given to those who believe. Let's bow together in prayer. Maybe God has spoken to some of you today who are Christians, but you're living like a prairie chicken. There's no difference in how you live than the most moral atheist in the world. But you want something different. You want something more. You don't need to seek something or somebody else. God already has given you his Holy Spirit. When God saved you, he not only issued you a pardon from sin, he's given you power over sin. And maybe today you would just say, God, please help me to start living in a way consistent with who I really am in Christ Jesus. But there's some of you watching or listening, you've never become a Christian yet. Don't forget, you have to be plugged into the power source to have spiritual power, and that power source is Jesus Christ. And today, if you would like to trust in Jesus to receive that pardon from sin, but that power over sin, I want to invite you, wherever you are, to pray this prayer in your heart, knowing that God is listening to your prayer. Would you pray this with me? Dear God, thank you for loving me. I know I have failed you in so many ways, and I'm truly sorry for the sins in my life. But I believe what I've heard today, that you love me so much, you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for me. 
to take the punishment I deserve to take for my sins. And right now, I'm trusting in what Jesus did for me, not in my good works, but in what Jesus did for me to save me from my sins. Thank you for forgiving me and help me to live the rest of my life for you. In Jesus' name, amen. On behalf of Dr. Robert Jeffress and everyone at First Baptist Dallas, thank you for joining us today. Our hope and prayer is that the biblical truth of this message will continue to be a blessing to you as you apply it to your life. For more information about First Baptist Dallas, we invite you to visit our website, firstdallas.org. May God bless you richly today.